Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Oh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Well, I want to introduce you to a product I literally love. It's Public Rec. It's an all-purpose pant. I got tired of wearing sweats during the pandemic. In fact, it depressed me to wear sweats. And I didn't want to wear jeans because they were – because I was home. I didn't want to wear them. And then I was introduced to Public Rec. Now, they are fitted perfectly. The length can be too long or too short in most of these sort of sweatpants, right? No. The waist and and the length is fitted to you. Here's what I love, I think, most. Well, I love this stretchy material. It's unbelievable. But secondly, they somebody thought of everything. Somebody literally put these pants on and lounged around and, by the way, went out in the world and said, how, how should we engineer these things? Pockets are deep. Pockets have zippers. There's a, there's a wallet pocket in the back that is deep and the wallet never falls out. They are durable. You can literally lie in these things feeling like you're in pajamas. And jump up and go out and engage in the world as though you're wearing slacks. That, I swear to you, that is how I, that is how I wear these public rec pants. Uh, they have what they call their all-day, everyday pant. That's what they are. They're, but they are stylish. And um, these are the top in my rotation. Good for lounging at home. And the all-day, everyday pant comes in a waist and seam sizing. So they fit tall, short, in between, whatever it is. And it's breathable. It's warm, but not. But it's breathable, so it's not too hot. So, uh, again, I'm a huge fan of this product. I wear them all the time, and they come in great colors. I thankfully have several colors, so I put them in rotation. And uh, a lot of my <laughs> pants are getting pushed to the back of the closet. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer just for the Dr. Drew listeners. Go to Public Rec, public, like, out public rec rec so it's p-u-b-l-i-c-r-e-c dot com slash drew not dr drew just drew and then use the promo code drew to receive 10 percent off well worth it public rec rec public rec dot com slash drew promo code drew for 10 percent off Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Of course, keep uh, supporting those guys that let us keep doing this podcast. We appreciate it very, very much. And, of course, uh, Master Corolla does as well. And uh, head over to drdrew.com. Check out your mom's house. Uh, I've got uh, After Dark there, and we do a stream every day. If you sign up at drdrew.tv or go to Facebook slash Dr. Drew or YouTube Dr. Drew, you'll find those streams there on a daily basis. And we have lots of interesting people. Much like today's guest, James Todaro, the website is medicineuncensored.com. You can follow Dr. Todaro on Twitter at at James Todaro, T-O-D-A-R-O-M-D. And we're going to talk a little COVID, right, sir? That's correct. So you've gotten involved. Tell me how you got involved in this. You're, 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 are you in, at Columbia still? Are you out in New York? No, I'm actually in Michigan now. Okay. And obviously the pandemic hit and you got involved in publishing some early papers. T- tell me about how you got there. Sure. Yeah. So uh, really since January, it looked like uh, COVID-19 was going to have an effect on uh, kind of the whole global <laughs> ecosystem. Yeah. And so I was watching it closely starting then, but it wasn't until about March that I became much more actively involved in the pandemic and publishing papers. And it really started with 
the first paper I co-authored, which was proposing chloroquine or its closely related compound hydroxychloroquine as a potential uh, therapeutic candidate for COVID-19. And, and, and let me let me just uh, yeah, I have lots of questions for as we go here. It was did you did you focus in on that because of the early data on the SARS one papers and uh, the CD's enthusiasm for its antiviral uh, properties back then? It was a combination of things, and so uh, you know, so it was that 2005 paper which showed that it was uh, potentially effective at least in vitro against SARS CoV one, and then we're seeing data coming out of South Korea and China where hydroxychloroquine is being used in their treatment guidelines over there, and then we're also in contact, um, or you know, saw some results coming from the south of France. This was, of course, before Dr. Raoul published his paper on hydroxychloroquine. Um, but so the combination of the in vitro evidence, uh, my co-author was pretty familiar with the uh, antiviral uh, properties of hydroxychloroquine. Which, which are, which are extensive. Uh, there's multiple mechanisms, and it's well described, particularly with coronaviruses, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, um, And so what was, I guess, shocking to me, the reason we even published that paper is, you know, we were seeing this evidence, yet it wasn't being discussed anywhere. It wasn't being investigated by the World Health Organization, the CDC, the FDA, wasn't discussed on mainstream media at all. And so we thought that information needed to get out there. And so we published that just as a Google document because we wanted to get it out there to the public as quickly as possible and not wait for a, maybe a lengthy peer review process. And then once that paper was published, it, uh, you know, it went viral after Elon Musk tweeted it out. And then just a few short days later, uh, you know, the president was talking about hydroxychloroquine in a press conference. Right. And then suddenly it became a dangerous, horrible uh, I mean, I've been I've been prescribing Plaquenil for thirty five years, which is hydroxychloroquine. Oh my gosh! I, yeah, yeah I, it's you know, it's not a, only have I never seen drugs a, you can find out there. Yeah, not only have I never seen a side effect. We, we'd always tell them, uh, you know, and this is a medicine they would take daily for years. These rheumatology patients, and we'd always say, "Hey, at a year, see the ophthalmologist. You can get some retinal deposits, or maybe some some." Uh, Retinal thing, some corneal deposits or retinal processes, but never saw anything ever, ever. And now I was doing my continuing medical education on rheumatology, and I came upon Plaquenil's obviously recommended everywhere for all sorts of rheumatic diseases. But they went, they focused in on pregnancy and said, "Oh no, if you have a lupus patient on Plaquenil, don't even consider taking her off. Keep her on the Plaquenil through the pregnancy. It's harmless." Yeah, I can't say that yep. about any other medication. Right. Uh, and there's studies that show that even hydroxychloroquine, even combined with azithromycin, uh, didn't show any increased mortality in a large not. cohort of pregnant patients. And, and chloroquine, um, so yeah. chloroquine I used to prescribe all the time for malaria. It's available over the counter in malaria-ridden countries. Uh, how in the world did our profession fall victim to politics? It's un- People who literally talk show hosts who just learned how to pronounce hydroxychloroquine two weeks ago have strong opinions about whatever should be prescribed. That is insane. Yeah. That's a certain kind You're of insane. You're giving them too much credit. Most of them can't actually even pronounce right. it correctly. Right. It's true. <laughs> right. It's true. So uh, what, what do we do? This is, this, is, this is a horror story I never saw coming. It's, it's, there's just so many elements of this regarding hydroxychloroquine, uh, fatality rates, reopening up, uh, that there's just a tremendous amount of misinformation out there, which is actually why I just continue to be involved in re- investigative research on this pandemic. And when you mentioned hydroxychloroquine for the, you know, the eye problems, yeah, that's one of the main side effects. And I'm an ophthalmologist by training, so I was pretty familiar with hydroxychloroquine before this pandemic. And, you know, 
hydroxychloroquine's first brand is dangerous. And if you really look at the when we first put out the paper, because people were saying, oh, it'll cause you to go blind. Right. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're talking about after about five years of daily use in relatively high doses, you're at a slightly increased risk of these uh, kind of retinal deposits that can cause some blindness. Yeah. Um, certainly not in a short treatment course. Yeah. And then it kind of segued into, oh, well, it's dangerous for the heart. And that's kind of where we've been left for a long time. And of course, there's really not any good data that shows increased mortality or lethal cardiac arrhythmias with hydroxychloroquine. Yet that's the narrative used by a lot of the governments, uh, you know, Doctor Fauci, bar, and, you know, bizarre, bizarre, labeling it as dangerous. So, so much of it, actually, as you, I'm sure you've talked about, created basically a, a fraudulent study to try to show that it was dangerous because they couldn't actually find. Right, this was the Lancet study. This is a Lancet study that yep. had to be retracted, which never happens. That's how fraudulent it was. So, so, so here's my confusion. So. We have some good data. I wouldn't even say good because none of them included zinc. But but I, I personally believe zinc is an important cofactor in the efficacy of the drug. But OK. So you've got some decent studies on hospitalized patients. Never really intended for hospitalized patients, but OK. Uh, some decent studies on prophylaxis without zinc, but OK. Uh, I kind of thought that might happen. Why are there studies on early COVID, which is where it's intended to be used? With that zinc, the, with zinc they, by the way. That's the biggest question. So that's something. So if you look back in my Twitter feed and through, you know, Dr. Raul and Dr. Zelenko, who are, you know, did a lot of research on this and treating patients with, with hydroxychloroquine, we've all been saying the same thing. Really, this needs to be used very early before you have cytokine storm, before you have the uh, hyperinflammatory phase of COVID-19. Yeah. And yet all these massive studies focus on patients that are, you know, a large percent of them are already in the ICU, they're yeah. intubated, where viral replication is maybe not really the most important factor anymore, right. where hydroxychloroquine is probably most effective. That's and right. so, you know, and, and if you look at these meta-analysis studies and stuff, they mainly are just kind of focused on that late stage of disease, where, you know, most of us would say it, it was minimally or not really, didn't really stand much of a chance of being effective. We didn't that. intend for it to be used then. It's, it tends to be used right. like in the first three days of fever or cough or early, early, early when viral replication is really the issue. And, and again, exactly. and with zinc and with, I, I, the zithromycin, I, 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 don't, I don't quite get that, but okay. Uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. So, yeah. Me. So a couple of comments on it. So azithromycin, I, you know, there's some small evidence that might have some antiviral effects in epithelial cells, but mm-hmm. it seems like it's really more to me, maybe potentially uh, preventing, you know, bacterial superinfection or something. Or whatever. Like yeah. Maybe in hospitalized patients. So that, I don't know. I know zinc. I think even Dr. Raul, because he didn't use zinc in his initial studies. I think he actually just came out with a paper or announcement saying that he agrees as well that zinc is, is probably a pretty important cofactor. How about how about uh, quercetin? Are you involved in all that stuff? I've heard some good things about it. I, you know, honestly haven't taken a deep dive into it, so I'm not I'm not 100 sure how sound the data is on it. So mm-hmm. I, I just mainly in, in data driven. Yeah. Um. And so that I, I you know which yeah I just haven't seen the the data. So for it. I, I will um, tell you I I take it my wife takes it with zinc. There is not sufficient data for me to recommend it to other people. Right. That's that was kind of where I, I yeah. my investigation stood. Yeah. When you mentioned the prophylaxis studies on uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, I don't know if you've discussed on the show or not the kind of the you know the big one that people were talking about is the one that was done uh, in the University of Minnesota uh, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and that was kind of of one of the studies that Dr. Fauci kind of alluded to when he said, look, it doesn't work in late stage of the disease and it doesn't work for prophylaxis. 
But what many people don't realize is that University of Minnesota study was essentially an anonymous online survey. What? Only a f- yeah, it was it was actually done where they recruited patients online. You signed up, and they were never seen by a physician. Most of the patients were actually not even didn't even have tests for for SARS-CoV-2, so they weren't even tested. And so, basically, diagnosing those patients with COVID nineteen came from uh, just a questionnaire. So, basically, the quality of those diagnoses was about similar to like a WebMD diagnosis. So that's what they were using. And so, and then even then, you know, they used it in fairly healthy patients. So, of course, the mortality was very low already. But if you take it, you know, the combination of the fact that there was a lower mortality, even though it wasn't significant, it was a small pool of patients. And then a lot of those patients probably didn't even actually truly have COVID-19. You could kind of see how, you know, the benefit of hydroxychloroquine might not kind of fully be uh, exposed in those studies. And that goes with their second study, which was then published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, which showed early use uh, shortly after contracting the disease. And it was the same problem. I think only about 33% of patients actually tested uh, positive for SARS-CoV-2. And actually, a number of the patients are included, tested negative for it, but they included them anyway. So, you know, the, the studies on prophylaxis use are not robust by any means. And I don't really think that they're sound enough to dismiss hydroxychloroquine as, as effective interesting. Uh, in early disease. Very, very interesting. So you, you still are, are holding out on prophylaxis, which it seems I, I figured there had to be more studies that were – I didn't realize it was a questionnaire. That's insane. Uh, OK. So uh, you're, you're, um, you and I are exactly in alignment. And by the way, I have prescribed it in COVID many times. And only one patient that I have treated got into real trouble, and that patient unfortunately checked every box for risk factors of COVID storm, of a cytokine storm, including antiphospholipid syndrome. And and I'm telling you, the storm developed like in three days. It was fast. Boom. It was just on. Wow. Terrible. Um, so, okay. So let's. you were going to talk about fatality figures as well. Yeah, so um, that's another thing that uh, – so we came out with a paper. So I co-authored a paper with a couple others as well as Dr. Zelenko back in April when we were first were starting to see some of these serology studies. And if you remember, the mainstream media immediately attacked them, saying that they weren't good studies, that they, you know, the antibody tests weren't that great, and that the actual mortality rate is higher. It's not – the infection with the infectious mortality rate is not low. But we came out with a paper that said – Look, it looks like the infection fatality rate across all ages is roughly about 0.2%. Okay, hold on. We so so let's, let's, let's emphasize that. So this is from 0 to 85, essentially. The, yep. the overall fatality rate is 0.2%, right? That's correct. Uh, do, you, do you break it down by age group at all or do you – I do. Um, I don't have the chart in front of me, but in that paper, we or shortly after that published paper, I added like basically an addendum, which was a, a chart breaking it down to certain age groups, the infection fatality rate, um, which obviously most of those deaths, the highest infection fatality rate is those over you know, roughly 65 years of age, whereas in the lower age groups, it's, it's, it's incredibly zero. small. It's a flu. It's a flu in the younger right. age group. And, and, and by the way, yeah. not as bad, yeah. not nearly as bad in younger people as H1N1. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fewer, we, fewer deaths, right, and fewer deaths even for the, the, you know, the normal flu, non-H1N1 flu right. um, in, in kids and you know, those under Right. Five. So flu A, influenza um, A, H1N1, way worse for a younger person. Not way worse. Worse absolutely. for a younger person. Uh, H1N1, Absolutely. definitely way worse. I had H1N1, almost died. It was horrific. 
Um, and I was my uh, one of my one of my great friends. Uh, his fiance actually had it. She was a healthy, athletic, twenty-year-old, developed H one N one. Actually, had to go on ECMO. Oh, uh, it was so bad. Jesus. Fortunately, so basically, ECMO for the, your listeners is like a you know a machine that replaces her lungs. Heart. Failed. Her lungs completely yeah. failed, even on a ventilator. And, yep. and and here's the deal. This is what I keep saying. So that was 2009. We had that pandemic, and you don't even know it happened. No one knows it happened. How do we go from an epidemic, the pandemic that was killing 20 to 40 year olds pretty routinely, not as bad, but but pretty routinely, to true? This is a different pandemic. It's different. It's more inf- infectious. It's more dangerous for older people. It's got a higher fatality rate probably than H1N1. But how do we go from not knowing it's happening to destroying our lives in an attempt to avoid this flu? How did, we, how did that happen? It's, it's unbelievable. So I think that there's a combination of uh, political and pharmaceutical interests. Um, and Zelenko keeps pointing at the pharmaceuticals. They're, they're an easy target. Uh, but go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, everyone kind of knows the political interests on it, um, but the, one of the most controversial U.S. elections in history coming up. Um, but I, but they, I'm, they, they, I'm sure it's – I think it's, it feels even more subtle than that though. It's, it's almost like a – oh my god, like a misunderstanding. First of all, le- these, these so-called political leaders have, have never made medical decisions before and I would say most of the public health officials have seem to have never made medical decisions before the way they're behaving, most of them. And, and, and they don't understand risk-reward at all. And they seem to have a misconception of what their job is as a governor, as a mayor. It's that's not their job. I mean, I don't know if ever in history they've directly infringed on a uh, doctor-patient relationship like they have with hydroxychloroquine, which is an FDA-approved medication for the past sixty-five years. That's I, always been a decision. I have. There are a thousand pills, a thousand, uh, at least a thousand. Mm, probably at least a thousand days out there of pills uh, that I have prescribed uh, with hydroxychloroquine, at least. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you have something to say about quarantine, this whole thing of quarantining healthy people. Yeah, it's 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 very odd. It's it's <laughs> we kind of take this took this approach where we just want to like treat everyone equally and have everyone under the same maybe punishment or same strict uh, protocols as you know whether you're a healthy 20 year old or whether you're a someone with you know an 85 year old person with comorbidities, which is just really ridiculous it's it's not how you go about this and we've already seen the, the ramifications of that where that that know, is that, 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 that is literally the same elderly. that is literally the same as saying i've got to take this 14 year old and assess him for cardiac risk and make sure he doesn't have a heart attack much the way i would a 75 year old smoker because there's no difference yep. same thing yep. same thing yep yep um, and it's it's really sad because we you know the ramifications while we we're focusing on schools and young people we totally ignore the nursing homes and we all know that those are the people that really suffered the most is mm. the, the vulnerable who didn't really even have you know patient advocates with them and ended up passing away alone and it just it's absolutely tragic what happened to them um, and, and not just the U.S. but even countries around the world um, yeah. The the whole I want to go back on to the fatality rate, but I want to finish this talk, conversation about the quarantine. Never in history, except briefly in Venice during the Black Plague, were healthy people quarantined. And when it was done historically, it was a huge mistake. Was it a huge mistake this time? And by the way, this particular episode, for people who don't know, was invented by a 14-year-old high school student. Do you know this, Gary? You've heard me say it before, yes? Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah. 14-year-old high school student uh, came up with the idea of quarantining to prevent school-wide outbreaks of influenza, a very different disease transmitted very differently. Her father was a computer programmer at Los Alamos, a modeling scientist, built a model to say, hey, we ought to have larger quarantines of regions if we have a pandemic. That became policy in the Bush administration, never applied and now magically applied as though it's sort of standard fare. Yeah. It's uh, it's you know obviously I don't agree with that approach and I think that uh, you know, hopefully we'll see the kind of truth of the data and we'll probably recognize that it was not the right approach. Well, let's uh, go back to, to see that. my original statement that it made things worse. Did it make things worse? In my opinion, yes. Yeah, it may, but strictly in terms of COVID or in terms of the overall health cost. Well, certainly the or overall both. health cost. Or both, I mean, yeah. we already we, you know much more you know use of drugs, suicides, psychological health of, oh, of people overall. It's kids, crazy. we don't even know the ramifications yeah. of this that will happen. So how about the students? How about the students? The kids were told, you know, you go outside, your parents are going to die. You can't go to school. <laughs> I mean, to tell it to an eight-year-old for six months, who knows what the impact of that's going to be? Yeah, and just even the socialization side of things. You know, you're now worried. You can't get too close to your friends. You have yeah. to. Stay away from their parents, and yeah. just—it's—it's it's a mess. It's a mess. And, and what do you have any opinion? What we should be doing? Um, I think the same opinion I had back in in April, which was protect the vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think you know, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. But I think many parts of the country have already you know reached something of an effective herd immunity threshold where they're probably safe opening up and won't see a second wave of deaths. And, and those are particularly for the hardest hit areas of the country. Um, so I think that schools can open up there for sure. And, you know, we should, yeah, focus on protecting nursing homes, maybe testing for healthcare workers in those homes and, and those patients. Well, let, let's go, let's dig into testing a little bit. I mean, the the PCR we're using is so magnifies, is so terrific, so accurate, well, not accurate, so good at picking up viral particles, um, RNA particles, that are we testing for COVID or just viral viral RNA in the in the environment? Because they don't distinguish between cases, meaning COVID sick, and virus present. Absolutely. So that's something that I've been saying. I said that. So I did this, uh, which again I'm talking about a little bit. This threat on T cell immunity, and one of the and a vaccine scientist, immunologist. Uh, basically attacked me and said, well, we're seeing rises in in a number of cases and, you know, where it shows live virus. And I was like, well, just because it's a PCR test, that doesn't mean that you have a live infectious virus. And he was like, that's not true, blah, blah, And he labeled all his credentials again. And now even New York Times, BBC, and we're seeing many scientists come out saying, hey, look, actually those PCR tests, you know, up to 70 to 90 percent of those people that test positive probably don't have an infectious live virus. Well, what we and don't – right. So we, well, we they're, they're certainly not sick. And, and then what we don't know though is whether they're contagious. That's a more difficult question, right? Well, I think that's what those that's, – that's what a lot of those immunologists and scientists were discussing that though where they – you know, based on the number of cycles that the PCR has to go through to yeah. detect this yeah. virus, yeah. that probably at somewhere between 30 you know, 40. cycles – 40. Right, they do forty, yeah. but they're saying that anything after about maybe twenty-five to thirty cycles, that's probably either way too low to be infectious, or it might not even be kind of an active virus that, that could be infectious. It might be fragmented. So, are they reporting what cycle they're detecting? 
No, that's a problem. Is it just mm. across the board? You get a test back, it says positive or negative. You don't know whether it took 40 cycles to detect a tiny fragment of the, the viral RNA or whether it was you know, 10 cycles, which means you have uh, you know, probably a lot of the virus. They may find um, they're just picking it up. Which is an incredibly important the... distinction in which they're kind of talking about how in future testing, that should be an included parameter in that. Or they should just decrease the number of cycles for the PCR test, or maybe it is more like 28 cycles. Or and, and you, What's that, Gary? Can you guys dumb down the cycle thing a little bit and explain so, it to me? So is, are they, you, want, you want to do it? Sure, sure. So the way PCR works is uh, it's a way so, of... So hold on a second. Let's go, let's go all the way. It's polymerase chain back. reaction, okay? Okay. Polymerase chain reaction. So it's a, a lab technique where you take a, um, a certain sequence of, say, DNA or RNA, and you basically amplify it. So you, you keep you, making copies of it. You, you make a copy. You make a copy, and then you amplify those copies. Right. So you, as you can see, if you each time you make a copy, you're kind of having exponential reproduction of the sample. And so, you know, that's how you're able to take a, you know, a single fragment and then amplify it enough where you can then detect it in a test and show, okay, it's present. And so each cycle you do that, it kind of exponentially uh, amplifies the number of those fragments. So, so, so remember, RNA so, or DNA is just a, is just a piece of it's a, it's a sequence of ribonucleic acids with a code, right? right. The, the genetic code, and yep. RNA has a code too. And they just take the 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 complementary fragment because you can put ribonucleic acids bind with other ribonucleic acids, and you bring out the same code and then amplify that code thousands of times. So basically the point that you guys are getting at is that when you do that, you could be – you're going to get a reporting that says positive when it's such a minute thing at the original level the, the, before I, you've exponentially – The way I think of it is there's so much viral RNA in the environment now that you could pick it up all kinds of – it could be sitting in my nose but not making me sick. It could be fragments. It could be all kinds of things. And we're picking all that up now because our testing is so good. Does that make sense? Yeah. Am so I saying that right, uh, James? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So our testing is ultimately given too, some too, of, too sensitive, too right. too too good. And given what some of the governors, I'm thinking of my own state of California, yeah. are putting the numbers at, is it's going to be impossible for us to go. Never, we're never getting out of this. The way the way Newsom has set up this this color scale, less than as, one. As soon per as it came 000? out, I said impossible, impossible. We're ne- impossible that we'll ever get out of this. Because look, think about it just this way. Not everyone's going to get the vaccine. So all that – there's going to be viral particles around quite a bit and people that aren't vaccinated or even people who are immune may carry – it's going to be all over the place. And this idea of one per 100,000 is the threshold before we can open again is a kind of insanity that makes me furious. It's a weird – It's unrealistic. It's, it's ridiculous. It's like who made that rule? Not a, not a biologist. I guarantee you that. Thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, my God. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm just – I'm exercised about that. I don't know what it's like in Michigan, but, man, in California, this is concentration camp time. I mean, it really is just – That is California, but it's not great. Uh, this is this, this is insanity, these people. So you mentioned something about T-cell function. Was there a story you wanted to tell there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess it, it bring up it, Gary's it, comment to kind of take a step back and yeah. kind of digestible yeah. for your yeah, yeah. Our listeners. So, you know, your immune system really consists of, of two parts. You have the innate, which is the non-specific immune system, which kind of just attacks general pathogens in your body. And then you have something called the adaptive immune system, which is the more specific one and the part of your immune system that can adapt to certain pathogens or viruses that it's exposed to. So that's how you kind of develop immunity over time to certain uh, viruses and colds. 
And so there is really two major cells as part of this adaptive immune system. There's B cells, which make antibodies, which a lot of people are familiar with the role of antibodies in protection uh, against viruses. But then there's also something called T cells, which can also remember and learn specific diseases and viruses and learn to attack infected cells. So, 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 so wait, let's, of- let's, let's amplify that. So T cells, to some extent, direct B cells. And if they see a cell that got a virus, they can go kill that cell before it's able to reproduce the virus and infect the person. Exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. Keep going. Yep. And so there's a there's been a growing amount of research over the last two months, which I don't think has been focused on uh, by mainstream media nearly as much as it should. Um, and they seem to focus it mainly from a vaccine perspective as opposed to a natural immunity perspective. Right, right. But what research has shown, and there's a number of studies, it's not just one study, we're talking about multiple studies now, where they took blood samples from pre-pandemic, so from 2019, took those blood samples, exposed them to SARS-CoV-2, so the novel coronavirus, and what they found is, and it, the numbers varied a little bit, but about 50% of those blood samples had T cells that specifically recognized SARS-CoV-2. Would, would you do okay. me a favor and could you – if you have those papers in one place, just send them to Gary so we can forward them to me. I'd love to read them. Uh, yes, and, I can and, definitely and, do that. And, and the, one of the theories I had heard is that coronaviruses are everywhere. They're the things that cause colds. And this may be some – remnant of previous exposure to some other coronavirus. Is that accurate? Yeah. So and that's what, that was even hypothesized by a number of the researchers uh, in, those, in those papers where they, there's four coronaviruses that make up a large part of the common cold. And so the thinking is that they share a lot of similarities. Even though this is called the novel coronavirus, it's still a coronavirus and has a lot of, of similar structures as the, the coronaviruses that make up the common cold. And so the thinking is that and probably about 50% of people who were exposed to the common cold coronaviruses developed this degree of T-cell immunity to be able to cross-react with the novel coronavirus. And so what this means is this is kind of a big deal because it changes the idea of you know, the path of this disease from an epidemiological standpoint, as well as uh, you know, infectious disease predictions. Because it was originally thought that you know, 60 to 70% of people had to get infected with SARS-CoV-2 to reach his herd immunity threshold because we had no immunity, zero immunity to this novel coronavirus. But that's most likely not the case. And that's kind of, we're not really seeing that in city after city, region after region around the world. We're not seeing it hit about 60 to 70% infected uh, based on serology testing, at least. Instead, what we're seeing is it hits about 20% infected and then cases begin to decline, deaths begin to decline. And then we really don't see a second wave of deaths. And this is what happened in London, Lombardy, uh, Madrid, Geneva, and New York City, Stockholm, many areas around the world. And we just saw that happen in Florida. Florida had about 20% uh, infected based on serology testing. And then what? Cases began to decline. Deaths began to decline. And that's what we've been seeing for the past few weeks. Um, and so it really kind of challenges the idea that we need 60 to 70% infected to reach this herd immunity. Also, T-cells can then explain maybe why so many people are asymptomatic, why, you know, in the neighborhood of 50% or maybe even more of people who, you know, test positive for SARS-CoV-2 actually don't have any symptoms. So there could be some you know, differences between, like we said before, where the PCR tests are kind of too good, or it could be that, um, and it's probably a combination of the two, that we have T-cells that are able to fight off this virus before we even develop symptoms. You know what's kind of interesting? is that older folks don't get colds. 
And, and I'm not sure that's a that I don't know what that is. I'm not sure it's because they have a a, a accumulated immunity. There's something about the immune system as it age. They tend not to get colds, while young people get exuberant colds. And I'm wondering if that exuberance is where they get the leftover T cell function that wanes with age. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting. Perhaps. Interesting. So, so did you see the interview on Unheard with uh, the Nobel Prize winner Michael Levitt? Um, I've been following a, a good amount of Michael Levitt's content. I don't think I've heard that specific okay. interview. Though. So, so I'm I'm sure then. I mean, he has made this case. He also has made the case that we 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 change our behavior, and when things start to pick up, we 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 distance from each other. So, so it's the twenty percent number is in the context of also behavior change. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. It, um, yeah, so there's, right, so there's two arguments. You could say that, you know, behavior changes at the 20%. Um, it does seem like it's very interesting how it's kind of always around that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably some problem. combination, right? It's probably something yep. about, like everything in medicine. So, so let's go back to your fatality rate. We, we didn't finish that conversation about the 0.2% overall fatality rate. What is, what is the press version of the fatality rate? What is the press telling us is our fatality rate? They, they, I don't know what they're saying these days, but I know when we put out 0.2%, we were attacked pretty aggressively and people told us that we were absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the CDC came out shortly thereafter saying that it was about 02 to 0.3%. Um, I know the media didn't cover that as much. And the way they talk about this disease, they um, definitely say it's, it's higher than that. I think they were saying something close to maybe 1%. Um, yeah, I, I, keep seeing, kind of, I keep seeing 08 Zero point eight. Okay, sure. Yeah. Something on zero point eight. Yeah. Um, it's it's actually interesting now that they are, you know, because I think it's pretty well known the infection fatality rate is, and it's probably going to continue to come out that it's actually much lower than that. Because yeah. even if you look at the the case fatality rate, if you can call it call based on PCR or based on the PCR test, the case fatality rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I just did analysis today where if you uh, in the U.S. the case fatality rate is about one percent. Based on PCR tests. So explain, you know explain, what you by case fatality. explain what you mean by case fatality rate. The case fatality, fatality rate. rate is the number of kind of diagnosed cases compared to the number of deaths yeah. with COVID-19. Yeah. And whereas yeah. that's different from the, say, infectious fatality rate, the IFR, which is the number of people that were infected, many of which weren't hospitalized or maybe didn't even know that they're infected. And so the infection fatality rate is going to be significantly lower generally than the case fatality rate. And so what, you know, we we're talking about a, uh, you know, the case fatality rate is, is something about 0.1%. Yeah. But the infection fatality rate is probably far lower. Right. We're probably talking about something that's, you know, in, like I said, 0.1, So So it is more, not, not hugely, but more fatal than influenza. It is more infectious than influenza. It, re- it requires some special attention. Let, let's be fair. But shutting down the world... <laughs> Is that the attention it needs? And by the way, isolating everyone in the home where the majority of the transmission occurs, it's all upside down, humbly. What do you think? No, absolutely. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, I think that so early on in this disease, you know, I don't think it was fully understood. We didn't really know what we were up against. And I'm talking about uh, you know, January, February, March. But then it became pretty clear to me in April that we, we were, there's enough evidence now to know how lethal this disease really was. And that's when in my mind it became like, okay, no. This is something that we can resume life as normal. We don't need a new normal, right. um, you know, and we can, you know, we'll get through this and we'll be fine. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's when it changed in my mind. Um, 
Right. I, 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 by the I way, I, I yeah. could tell I, – I got wrong the exuberance of the cytokine storm uh, and the risk factors to the elderly and the infectivity. I got that all wrong. But the, but the overall panic that the press was trying to induce and the fact that this is not that much worse than influenza or certainly I was trying to compare – help people understand against H1N1, I, I, I could see this coming. I could see it coming in January. And I knew we were going to do something horrible because of panic and not because of the illness. Yeah, that's what we did. Yeah, um, which is you know really unfortunate. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was uh, you know yeah. And now, and now we have uh, politicized medicine. Now we have therapeutics we could be using, except we can't because because the politics has interfered with the doctor patient relationship. We have massive economic displacement. We have suicide up, depression up, anxiety up, opioids up, opioid overdose up. It's going to the, – the, and delay in treatment. Every time – I want people to listen to me. Every time you hear your hospitals are full, it's not full of COVID. It's full of people who have been delaying their medical care and now are coming in hot. They're coming in sick and, and people are dying because of that. The unintended deaths are going to be just off the chain. And do you ever examine? Uh, do you agree with that? First of all, am I saying anything that you just? Yes, read? yeah. And yeah. the other thing with hospital, you got to be a little bit careful when they say hospitals are full because sometimes it means that they're just full regarding the staff capacity. Well, they always, so they always they mean that. Staff. The, here, let me tell you a little secret. Now, ICUs are managed in such a way that they're always at ninety percent. Absolutely, I worked in the ICU. It was almost always exactly that. Always, that's the, the so nurse manager. Like two extra patients in an ICU, and now you're at capacity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the nurse managers are punished if they don't keep it at ninety percent. Staff it. They have fourteen beds, but they have staff for nine beds. Yep. That's a hundred percent. That's a hundred percent full now. Yep. It's not available beds. It's how how what's the percentage of beds that are used right now versus. Wait. For real, the numbers are based on the number of staff. That always, are there? always. What? How is that? I, I'm telling you that we know this. This is our world. This is our profession. You shouldn't have to worry about this. Nobody should be reporting it to you. We know it. We're the ones that make the decisions. Oh my god. Oh my god. It makes me crazy. <sighs> anyway. Uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> James was. I, I wanted uh, to go back. See. Infection fatality rates. Uh, no, no. I wanted to go know. back to the panic porn, the hospitals, the delay in treatment, politicized medicine. It's not coming back to me. Whatever I wanted to talk about. Something that. Uh, shoot. Well, uh, again, uh, let's let's talk a little vaccine. Where, where are you coming in on that? You know, let's say, you know, if we just take a step back and look at Sweden, okay, and I, I know it's probably been discussed uh, at length, but, you know, and this kind of ties again to the T cell immunity argument that there's really a path, I think, for natural hum, uh, immunity. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Sweden, they're down to less than one death per day now. And this is in, and I just posted well, In California, that would be unacceptable. We wouldn't be able to open if that was happening in California. Exactly. You know, one death is too many. Um, And so uh, there's a video that I just tweeted today where it shows someone in the subway, which shows kids interacting with each other, kind of hanging out. You you don't have any of those little circles on the ground showing you need to be six feet apart. You don't have, you know, seat fillers, making sure you don't sit too close to someone. Sweden, and this is Stockholm, is, is largely back to normal. They don't have really a new normal. And you're seeing less than one death per day. The number of cases is not skyrocketing. It's kind of staying level over there. And so, you know, 
a vaccine could it could it be helpful it's possible but this is a, a new vaccine it's a little bit different from the other vaccines and i don't know if i would jump into vaccinating a whole country uh even you know people who are have extremely low risk of of uh, you know dying from this disease uh you know that early especially with safety data that only goes out you know six months nine months i think it's something that you know usually vaccines new vaccines take years to develop the flu vaccine is a little bit different because it's a hodgepodge of, of kind of the samples that they've taken they've been doing the same approach for you know many years but this is a new vaccine and i don't think that I would really just jump into to getting it uh, for something that has an infection. Yeah, rate of I, 0.2%. I I understand it. I, I get that. And and if you have concerns, you might want to use get one of the vaccines that is a more traditional protein or attenuated virus, that kind of thing. I, I personally have signed up for four phase three trials because a I want to I I've looked at the biology. It looks looks very safe to me, and I want to help push this thing forward. And b and this is the reason I'm going to take the vaccine. I'm sick and fucking tired of all this. I want to move about the country. <laughs> You'll do whatever it takes at this point. <laughs> yes. And so – but no one has asked me to come on these trials. So I'm sure I will be part of the November distribution and I will happily take it. Uh, I would prefer uh, to take, again, a more traditional vaccine than uh, the, MRA, the RNA or the DNA vaccines. But I'll take them. The, the, bio, the biology looks amazing on those. They're just amazing technologies. Um, yeah. So I, I get it. And, and I don't I, – see, I don't think the government should be mandating – Frankly, anything. It's all overreach. They should not be mandating masks. They should be not mandating vaccines. I can, I they should not be 100%. mandating the prevention of hydroxychloroquine. This is not – this has nothing to do with the government. This is your and my profession doing our thing, what we do. We have the CDC. I, I've been following Dr. Fauci for 35 years. He's never let me down and uh, that's it. We just do how, what we know how to do. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, get, I get asked about masks all the time. And it's always, look, if you feel like you need a mask, if you feel like you're vulnerable, then wear a well, mask. Well, I, I, like I, I like the mask because you can kind of see the, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, you can see when people start wearing masks diligently, you see the cases go down. And, and we've got, we have a Gestapo in California. We have to do something here, James. And so we're going to have to all get together and wear the damn masks to, to get ourselves out of this concentration camp we're in. So I sort of feel like, please, everybody, let's kind of get with it just because we're seeing the, seeing the thing decline, at least until the vaccine comes out. And let's all get the vaccine if you feel up to it. Uh, so I, I, it's interesting to me that there's not one thing we even mildly disagree on, which is kind of unusual in medicine or in biology. You know, they usually we'll have sort of things around the margins that we disagree about. But I can't think of one thing you and I disagree about. Well, I think it's because we have a lot of evidence that's coming out now. So if you actually look at the evidence, you know, you can, you know, using scientific, you know, based approaches, you can come to. Wait a minute. You know, Wait, hold a second. I mean, there's such a thing as the truth? I'm shocked. Maybe. Wait. Maybe. <laughs> you know, I, I would say back in February, we probably would have disagreed. I mean, we certainly would have disagreed on, on some things. But that was because there wasn't enough evidence. Yet. Well, we wouldn't now we wouldn't have been evidence. using such certainty in our language either. We would have been going, oh, I right. think it looks like, you know, whatever. Gary, go ahead. So I, I just – in an attempt to further the conversation a little bit, are there doctors out there that you respect that do disagree with you and where? Uh, yeah. oh, good question. Go 
Well, I don't know where they are. I know there's a lot of weirdness around hydroxychloroquine, and it just looks politically motivated to me. Dr. Zelenko says it's motivated by profit, you know, for the pharmaceutical companies. It's weird to me. It's just weird. Why wouldn't you want to look at the studies, get more studies, and make your conclusion? And and to have any energy with it is weird to me. Uh, beyond that, it it seems like a consensus is growing, which is again always the way it works. Um, I, where do you see pushback, James? There's a pushback on a number of fronts, but I think it, it kind of comes a little bit, um, you know, a lot of physicians, and I think we have this training in residency where whatever we're, our training is in, we're not really allowed to think about any specialties or any aspects of medicine outside of that. Uh. And that's different for family practice doctors and maybe emergency medicine. But like, if, for instance, ophthalmology, it was like, oh, you don't think about anything else. If you right. want... You know, if a patient asks if they should take a vitamin, it's like, well, you should talk to your family practice doctor. <laughs> I, I, listen, you you had the same training I had. You're you're pr- probably a biologist by training to begin with, or certainly you've had plenty of that. And yeah. and then, and you have and you're look, you and I know who got into ophthalmology residencies, not the dummies. So <laughs> I want your good mind uh, helping us. Well, right. So my my point is is that so many people, so many physicians won't actually think about this disease. Mm. So unless there's specifically an infectious disease physician mm. or maybe an epidemiologist to be talking about the epidemiology of the disease, they, they will say, they'll just kind of refer to whatever they're seeing on mainstream media, whatever their, uh, whatever they, tr- whoever is their trusted source, right. which, you know, I think that for, just like you said, and which is why I feel comfortable talking about the infectious disease component of this, the immunology, immunology perspective aspect of it is because, you know, it's all evidence. It's still reading ability to read evidence. Yeah. What we were trained to do in That's medical right. school and residency. Yep. And so I feel comfortable doing that. Yep. So many physicians though, will sit there and say, and other physicians will tell me, they're like, well, you're an ophthalmologist. This isn't your specialty. And I was like, I know, I know how to read evidence though. That's, that's what we're talking about here. We, we know good versus not good scientific papers. We know whether or not the evidence is something that looks some, like something we can rely upon. We know how – we look towards reproduction of that data. We, you know, we, just, we just know how to assess it. That's all we did during residency. We just assess papers right. all and the, the time. And there was that training that helped like, you know, detect the Lancet study was fraudulent. Yeah. It, it didn't, the data didn't make sense. And then when you dug into surgery sphere, it absolutely didn't make sense. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, that's so, you know, so when you say, do other doctors disagree? Yeah, there's plenty of doctors that disagree with me on, uh, on hydroxychloroquine, on the long-term effects of this disease, on whether we should reopen up. But I think it's because they're not really actually thinking critically about this, not doing their own research, it's just relying on whatever kind of channel they're listening to. And, and I, and, and, you know, in our world, it's, it's good to have, you know, some pushback and discourse and stuff like that. But the that that we want that it helps us think our think through our positions more carefully, uh, and and we can turn out to be wrong sometimes. That happens a lot. But the weird energy and and, and shit slinging that goes with it now is just is just beyond other otherworldly. It's very, well, that very, very and, and even the, you know a step further, the censorship we're seeing on on numerous levels. I mean, if you even if you forget about social media platforms, the censorship on there, which I'm sure you heard, I was part of the frontline doctors. Uh, you know, the White Coat Summit back in D.C. Uh, a few weeks ago. And, you know, that was censored across all social media platforms. But you're even seeing it now at the level of academic journals. There are a number of immunologists, biomathematicians, infectious disease experts that are trying to publish their own research on this pandemic. But if it doesn't fit the narrative. mainstream narrative, yeah. they're not being published, which is and, and this and a biomathematician actually put out a, a great article that looked at, um, you know, basically what I was saying, which why are we seeing 
these infectious, you know, the infections hit about 20% in decline. It was a yeah. great mathematical model explaining that. And she tweeted out a exact response, a quote from the journal Wilds Rejected. And it was basically, well, we think it's dangerous to put out this information that the herd immunity threshold might be lower than 60, 70%. So that's why we're not publishing this. This should not be happening, especially in journals. That's where you have an open evidence-based approach. It's you're, you're really going back to like the Stalin era, and you yeah. know, when you're talking about suppressing yeah. science, yeah, it's dangerous. Right. This is this is Stalinistic. It's Maoist. Yeah, it's weird. It's so weird. It's weird. Well, I appreciate you speaking out, and uh, it's good to talk to you. Um, we'll see, you know, how this all goes. I, I think we're I think we're certainly getting into a better phase right now. I, I don't expect another peak following this, particularly with a vaccine on the horizon. Uh, but I think it's a virus we're going to be living with for a long time. I, I think that too. I think yeah. that this idea of completely eradicating it is is a little bit silly. I think it's I think that the most vulnerable people. Well, let, let me let, yeah. So so here's something you don't deal with as an ophthalmologist, which is death and dying and aging. So much. I mean, I know you're taking a lot of cataracts out and that kind of thing, but as an internist, that's all we deal with. And I'm here to tell you, I would never be a patient in a nursing home. So if I am so far gone that I need chronic care in a nursing home palliate get get me hospice get me something and let's let's call it a day everybody needs to have these conversations with themselves with their parents you will be surprised how many people don't want to live in misery or dementia or debilitated and non-functional they don't want it and if there's no chance of coming back most a lot of people would like something let's call it conservative which is like a hospice type thing and, and I am one of those people. I, I, if you put me in a nursing home, I will come haunt you. I will come haunt you when it, when it, when the time comes. <laughs> let let me go. And a lot of and you got to understand something. You keep talking about the most vulnerable. Do you know what the average length of stay is in a nursing home? It's it's uh, no, I don't. After but. admission, it's it's it, in dementia units. It's yeah, six sure. it's six months. Yeah. So how much life are we preserving here? Even for a general nursing home unit, it's six to twenty-four months, depending on what data you're looking at. So you're saving you're saving at max two years of misery. What do we do now? If somebody really, really wants that, they should get it. Now, don't get me wrong; I'm not saying people should not have access to it, and it should be done in a high, high, high quality way if that's what people want. I'm telling you, it's not for me, and I, well, I am think, not didn't alone. We, didn't we kind of see a response to that though when we saw this kind of started ripping through nursing homes? It seemed like you know a lot of the you know, a lot of kids started pulling their parents out of nursing homes, yeah. and they were you know getting out. So you know the ones that uh, you know that could get out kind of it kind of naturally solved itself to some degree. Of yeah. course, people were taken by surprise, um, but yeah. Well, the other thing that I'm hearing now increasingly from elderly people is as this thing has dragged on, it's like, hey, I'm 75 years of age. I'm a male. My life expectancy is another eight years. You want to take a year away from me and from seeing my grandkids? And my, you want me, for, I could die uh, just of being 75. I could die at 77. And now you've taken half of my remaining time. The, so a 0.8 chance, 0.8% chance of dying of an illness and a 100% chance of losing 10% of my remaining days. Best case. Best case. Older people Absolutely. are start- something that everyone has to carefully weigh. It's not a freebie. You're not giving up. I mean, you're giving up seeing. You're giving up living your life. And you know, I've right, my grandparents are the same way. They, you know, my grandfather's in his 90s, and he's like, well, you know, I look forward to kind of getting to see everyone more frequently after this pandemic's over. And you know, you gotta you gotta weigh that a little bit. Like he's super healthy. He's great. He probably would actually survive it. He'd be fine. <laughs> if he got it. Um, but but that's something that is. You know, there's a there's a real cost here. 
it's not a, a freebie. It's a, it's a real, real serious cost. It's a human cost. It's a spiritual cost. It's an interpersonal cost. And and I'm I'm here to tell you, ask these elderly people if they want to pay that price up front or take a risk on the backside that they contract this thing. And by the way, and personally, I, we, we didn't discuss masks, but masks work. They mitigate the risk. Wear the mask. Keep a distance. Do, do sensible things. But don't – you may not want at the age of 78 to cash in a huge piece of your remaining time in the name of what? In the name right. of – it's, 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 it's risk management. Like you, if you're 80, you're going to go out to a concert or go to like you – know, probably not. Maybe you don't do that. Right. But if you're talking about like hanging out with your grandkids, you yeah. know, hugging, hugging your family, maybe that's okay. Yeah. We wear a mask. Have them tested the week before. There's all kinds of ways to manage it. So yeah. – all right, listen, this has been a fun conversation, and I appreciate you speaking out. I appreciate the research you've done, and I appreciate you coming on today. Um, we are Twitter pals now. I just got you. And also MedicineUncensored.com. Twitter is James Todaro, T-O-D-A-R-O-M-D. And uh, any place else you want to send people? That's just about it. Anything coming that we should look forward to in the near term? Um I'm going to be putting out some content on the uh, kind of case fatality rates, I think, over the next couple of days. But, uh, oh, I, I know the last thing I, I wanted to talk to you about was the excess death, excess mortality relative to our usual the, – the, the monthly mortality that we always have. <laughs> have you looked at any of that data? Um, I have. So there, is, there does seem to be an uptick of, in deaths if you average out the – so the first like 32, 33 weeks of the year if you compare – the average for 2017, 2018, 2019 to 2020, there there does seem to be an uptick. So I don't think we can sit there and say, oh, the, oh the no, no, we but but folks. but again, I'm back to Dr. Levitt's stuff. He he looks at that cycle as having concluded. Like we're we're through it. We're through oh, the excess right. deaths. We're, right. No, that right. So if you look at the last, let's say, ten weeks, it's pretty much over. We're kind of trending back to you know standard levels. Yeah. They actually put out a uh, a chart a couple of weeks ago that shows that you know in Europe. The, the you're more likely to die of suicide. Uh, suicide rates are higher now than COVID deaths. Over there. yeah, and they, well we're heading there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yep. All right. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. All right. We'll sounds good. You. See care. you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. 